Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk? Today we're going to talk about unmasking Antifa. Ilmar, Ilhan Omar has a meltdown you won't believe. Kirsten Gillibrand comparing pro-lifers to racists. Arizona one, Nike zero, and last, AOC's border absurdity. And of course, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. Hi, and welcome again to America Can We Talk. Yesterday in the show, we talked quite a bit about the Antifa, left-wing Antifa thug group that had engaged in extreme violence in protests in Portland and had also threatened that they're going to engage in actually throwing acid in people's faces at an upcoming free speech rally um, in Washington. Antifa, left-wing group, very violent, very, very extreme. Um, And simply their message is no one in America is allowed to talk about anything or hold any view or stand up in any march for any view that we do not accept. Just the word ironic doesn't begin to capture how absurd they took their name Antifa because they say they're standing for they're standing for anti-fascism. They are the anti-fascists and they're the among the most fascist left wing organizations in America. These are leftists who do not like free speech, do not like let others engage in the speech that they think they should get to engage in. Well, there was a great piece. I just want to do a little add on to yesterday's story. Part of what Antifa does to get away with the conduct they do is to wear masks. You'll see many, many protests where the Antifa thugs, criminals, are have covered their face. They have either a whole face covering or a mask, just their eyes showing, and they have something covering their faces entirely. And one of the suggestions was, why don't organizations or, or cities and counties and state governments around the country pass a law essentially saying you must remove a mask if the police tell you to, that you do not have the right necessarily to be in public wearing a mask. And it turns out there was a, a, a case involving the Ku Klux Klan, another left-wing violent terrorist group in this country. Again, Ku Klux Klan formed by the Democrats, engaging in unspeakable violence, covering their heads, covering their whole bodies, covering their faces. Antifa does this kind of same thing as Ku Klux Klan did. They're both left-wing groups, they're both hate groups, they both are intolerant of anyone who won't agree with them, and they both cover their faces and engage in violence. Well, it turns out there was a case, and I actually think um, that we should talk about a tiny bit with respect to the First Amendment, because this is a great idea for at least local communities, cities and counties, and maybe nationwide, a movement to say that number one, The police can tell you, can tell anyone, remove that mask immediately and that the person can be arrested for not doing it. Because part of what these cowards are doing, of course, is they're evading capture, evading arrest because they hide their faces. So it's very, very hard in Portland right now. As a matter of fact, the police have managed to identify one person in that entire thug protest by Antifa. They've identified one person. So. I just thought this was a very interesting case, and this was a case called uh, Church of the, um, anyway, uh, it involved the um, 
a protest where people were wearing Ku Klux Klan masks. And the, uh, New York had an anti-mask law that made some of these people um, unwilling to participate in rallies. And so the argument was, I want to just make these two clear points about how right it is for jurisdictions to consider passing laws saying, you have to take that mask off. And frankly, you would like to have people at these marches be able to pull the mask off someone's face to take their picture. This is why these people keep the mask on so no one ever knows who they are. But the two arguments that the court considered, I want to share with you, one was the argument by the Ku Klux Klan was, well, you know, we have this mask, our whole getup uh, is part of our free speech. It is a form of speech in choosing how we dress. And the court basically said, look, you wear your stupid long white gowns, you wear the, you know, the hat thing. You know what? You don't need the mask. It's not the only way in which you can communicate. You don't have to have your face covered. The second argument that the Ku Klux Klan made was, well, on the, on the other th hand is, what about the right of free speech anonymously? Why don't we have the right, or shouldn't the right of free speech include the right to speak anonymously? And so we want to cover ourselves because we don't want people to know who we are. That was also rejected by the court, which said essentially, yeah, maybe there is in some abstract way, there's a time when we would agree that the First Amendment does protect anonymous speech. You can hide your, your identity. But given the situation, the purpose of hiding your identity, committing crime, committing violence, and then trying to escape uh, evade detection, no, you don't have that First Amendment right to, uh, that you, we're not gonna extend the First Amendment to protect your right to wear a mask when your purpose is to, to evade detection. So I just, it's a little add on, you know, yesterday's violence, I, I mean, this weekend's violence in Portland, I told you just one story invite, uh, involving this, eight, this is a guy named, last name is NGO, pronounced no, Andy No, he's a journalist, he's um, Asian, and he's been very outspoken writing about both the dangers of Islam and the dangers of Antifa, exposing them as a as as a the thug group that they are, and so he was among the ones attacked. But it turned out there were other attacks in Portland same day, same protest, other side of the big town square. I didn't go into those, and I think it's, the details probably are not worth reviewing in this show. But I do want to make clear that this Antifa mindset is the notion that they have the right to threaten others to attack people for and in, in case in, in this particular case in portland it was a, a right-wing group that was that was marching and i don't know it's called proud boys um i i am not actually sure what they stand for except to say i think they probably have some pretty extreme views but they were not instigators they were doing their march and doing it, which they're permitted to do this idea that antifa is embracing and trying to sell to america is they get to shut down speech they don't like. They get to engage in violence to shut down speech they don't like. They get to invade, engage in violence, hide their identities, never be accountable to shut down speech they don't like. And they are on the move. This is a left-wing movement in this country, very dangerous, very symbolic of the attitude of the American left, utter intolerance, utter intolerance for anyone who will not agree with the views they hold. So these are the remaining Antifa rages in Portland. I mean, I could go on and on describing, but this is a, you know this Proud Boys group that is uh, the right wing group that the Antifa group are fighting have numerous marches coming up. So probably haven't heard the last of this story. And that, my friends, is today's first five.
I want to turn today, you know, if you are a regular listener, you, you know that quite often on this show, in fact, every month on this show, um, on the first Tuesday of the month, we have a regular guest, Star Parker, the founder of Cure. And she is almost always with us on the first Tuesday of the month. I talked to her this morning. She's having a hard time. Uh, she couldn't come on the show today. Just got uh, caught up in some things. So I decided to go ahead and share the things with you in the show today that I was going to go over with, with her, with, with Star Parker. And the reason is they're really, really consequential in this uh, upcoming, not just this upcoming election, but kind of in the attitude that is emerging on the American left and what Star Parker is trying to do. And very quickly, Star Parker is the founder of CURE, the Center for Urban Renewal and Education. Star Parker is the author of Uncle Sam's Plantation. In her words, you know, she was a young woman who grew up on welfare in Los Angeles, did all the things that, you know, wrong things that sometimes emerge when people uh, grow up um, in low-income areas and living on welfare. You know, she dropped out of high school, she got into drugs, she committed crimes, she had babies out of wedlock. I mean, she really did the whole life that unfortunately she's, that, that people fall into sometimes uh, in the world, relying on welfare and in, especially in, in uh, inner cities in America. Fortunately for Star, she literally found Christ, found religion, turned her life around, and now she had, she's one of the most prominent conservative black activists, conservative spokesman, black spokesman in this country, um, speaking up for conservative values. And she always says she stands for the three C's, Constitution, Christianity, and conservatism. So there was a, and so she, and her organization Cure reaches out and tries to help low-income inner city uh, communities all around America in the big cities with her message of there's a better way than welfare. There's a better way than living your life in dependency on the government. She, she works through a pastor's network, a massive pastor's network, where she brings them tools, ideas, information that they can in turn spread throughout their communities in, in the black churches in the inner cities. She brings these pastors to Washington at least once a year. She puts on programs, help them understand policies and ideas. She's testified in Congress many, many times. She's well known pretty much on both sides of the aisle in Washington uh, because of her extraordinary, relentless work on behalf of lifting up inner city America, especially inner African American inner city America, to encourage them to live better lives, to, to, to grab onto the potential that America offers. That's what Star Parker does. So it was very telling and, and really interesting this past week, or I guess last week, uh, there was to be uh, the U.S. House, uh, now controlled by the Democrats, the U.S. House Budget Committee uh, decided to hold a hearing very last minute, Democrat House Committee on the Budget decided to host a hearing the very next day um, on uh, hosting liberal community activists and especially asking them essentially, you know, what's the score, what's the story in poverty in America? Obviously a hearing set up to justify increased social spending, increased social programs. So the Democrats who run the House had their whole bunch of liberal activists lined up to testify. And uh, Star Parker was offered, uh, fortunately for her, Steve Scalise, a Republican congressman, reached out to her and said, you know, can you get people here tomorrow? 
So she did. Star Parker reached out to two people in her pastor's network. Uh, one was Latasha Fields, and the other one was Pastor David Mahan. Um, and so Star made a little video that described what, what had occurred in this hearing in Congress. So first I want you to hear, and I gotta tell you folks, this was about an 18 minute video, I think, trying to pick out even the tiny segments I did uh, to feature this Latasha Fields. They don't nearly do justice to what this woman testified to in Congress, and then we're going to play how Representative Ilhan Omar reacted to what this young woman had to say. But here's Star Parker and uh, feeding into this House Budget Committee hearing. Hi, I'm Star Parker, and what you're about to see is a Muslim Congresswoman's response to a Christian pastor who recently shared her testimony at the House Budget Committee's hearing on poverty. My name is Latasha Fields. I am the founder of Christian Home Educator Support System in Chicago, Illinois. I have been married to Ronald Fields II for 13 and a half years. We are home educators of four wonderful children. I have two girls, 22 and 3, and two boys, 12 and 9. My husband and I are both born and raised in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I spent 33 years there before I came to move to Chicago, Illinois, seven and a half years ago to expand our evangelistic work. We serve as the overseers and pastors of our report ministries and publication in Chicago. I am also the founder of Christian Home Educator, which is a homeschool academy, and Christian Home Support System, which is our support group. These are evangelistic outreach ministries to serve and support the families of the city of Chicago and surrounding communities. My mom was a teenage mom on drugs in and out of prison. My grandmother was a strong woman, hardworking woman. She showed tough love and had amazing independent work ethics. So I basically grew up in the typical black stigma community surrounding me, the lack of motivation for education, promiscuous behavior, drugs, crime, and some on welfare. In spite of the circumstances that surrounded my childhood, I was one that often fought against the odds. I had a love for education. I never did drugs and I never committed a crime, but however, I did fall into promiscuous behavior, and at the age of 17, I became a teenage mom. This was the turning point of my life. I will never forget the day that I found that I was pregnant. I went into a Planned Parenthood in my neighborhood. I was devastated, I was frightened, and I was scared because I was one of those kids that excelled in school, was popular in school, played sports, was on the homecoming court. You name it, I was in it. So basically, I kept myself from the normalized behaviors that plagued the black community. So becoming pregnant was embarrassing to me. I didn't want to be like the rest. I had always strived to be better. I didn't want to be like the social norm. I didn't want to be another statistic. I didn't want to be the 72% of moms raising a child single. So while waiting for the results of my pregnancy test, I was crying and I was thinking how I had ruined my life. The nurse came back in the room and she told me that I was three weeks pregnant and she consoled me that I had another choice. I had a choice to abort my baby. I must take responsibility for my actions and live with it. Live the best possible life I can, give my child the best possible life I can, finish high school, go to college, and make something of myself. I decided, in spite of my teenage pregnancy, that I will continue to press past the popularized social norms of the black community. By November 2004, I gave my life to Christ. Met my husband, we got married October 2005. After becoming a Christian, I became an ordained minister. My faith began to challenge and propel me to work for families and kids and tackle the problems that plague the black communities. I Are there examples of successful anti-poverty programs that you have been a part of that address these pro problems for you? Uh, thank you, uh, uh, Member Flores. Yeah, and, and that's, I'm, I'm hearing everybody testify as well over the same thing, and I'm finding it hard to understand why when the word is said hard work, why is that interpreted in a different way?
Okay. This was a, I mean, it was so hard to pick the segments that we, that she, uh, to have her tell you about her life. But I want to hit these points because they're really important. Star Parker and Cure are inspiring Americans in low-income communities, especially African-Americans, to believe they can make it in America, to believe they have a path forward, a future, a potential, encouraging them to stay in school and, and, and uh, you know, don't have kids until you get married and, and get educated and get a job and find a skill and, and move forward and make and join the American dream. Star Parker fights hard on the Republican conservative side because of the values she believes in, the same values that many conservatives do. The idea that the American dream is, is premised on individual responsibility and personal responsibility and rights from God and abilities from God and the right to live your life in freedom and to pursue your dream. Star Parker stands for that. She teaches that. She passes that along. This young pastor, this is a this woman you were just hearing speak. I mean, I had to cut out so much of what she had to say. She managed on her salary, if you want to call salary, from working at Burger King uh, to she had her child, this, as she mentioned, baby out of wedlock. She uh, you know, finished high school. She still managed to have a good GPA, be a good student. She had to work. She managed to, to rent an apartment, live on her own, save enough money, buy her own first home home when she was 18 with a three-bedroom, one-bath house in, in Louisiana, uh, Baton Rouge, I think she's from. She, I mean, her life story she went through is to say, I found out if I worked hard and I, and, I, and I was conscientious and I was careful and I was responsible, I could move forward. I could end up living the American dream. So then she moves to Chicago. You heard her whole story. And so now she and her husband, her husband owns a barber shop in Chicago and they live off the income she has from her ministry, from her, uh, she has organizations trying to help other people do homeschooling. They have the barber shop and so they own a home now in the Chicago area. This is the American dream. This woman is telling you the American dream. She's telling you that America still offers that. If you will get off the plantation, get off the reliance on welfare, the reliance on you know, food stamps and all sorts of aid and instead rely on your God-given abilities. Her, her testimony, honestly, if you listen to the whole thing, you'll probably end up getting teary. But let me move forward and say, I want to share with you how Democrat Muslim American Representative Ilhan Omar exploded at this woman in this hearing after she was done giving the testimony you just heard. Here is Ilhan Omar. Um, I'm, I'm a little frustrated because I heard a lot about love. And one thing that I know is it's not because of the lack of love that we're not able to feed our children. It's not because of the lack of love that we are able to house people. It's not the lack of love that we are unable to um, uh, uh, save people from dying because they don't have health care. It's not because of lack of love um, that uh, you were able to finish college because you got help with childcare. <laughs> Love has nothing to do with this. And if you want to bring love into this, you got to bring radical love. Because radical love means that we radically love every single person within our communities to make sure that we are providing for them the basic rights as humans. That's what love is. And that's the godly thing to do. Mm. So if we, we want to talk about faith, we also have to remember that we can't pray our problems away. Exactly. The other thing that frustrates me is people who have experienced poverty. 
who have gotten the straps for their bootstraps, <laughs> who sit and talk about how we shouldn't do anything for the next person. Oh. Or we hear someone say, I, it was a choice made up to me to have my children and not be like the other black people <laughs> who get to have children out of wedlock. We don't get to have those kind of conversations. Mm. Okay. I wanted to play that because, and, and you can, again, the link is on our website, americacanwetalk.org, or you can just go to YouTube or, and, or go to Star Parker's website, urbancure.org, many ways to find that clip and listen to all of what Ilhan Omar had to, said, had to say. If you were an ignorant American, had no context for what Ilhan Omar was saying, you might be drawn into her passion. She's saying, you know, she's saying, you know, we need, you need money, you need, you can't rely on prayer and love. And I want to make clear how extremely radical, un-American, distasteful, and downright hateful Ilhan Omar's remarks were. Number one, consider this Christian pastor who flies to Washington a day's notice. Obviously, she's homeschooling. She has three kids still at home. She's running her ministry. She's running a, uh, another outreach organization to help people with homeschooling. She's a very busy woman. She comes to the floor of the U.S. House. This is Pastor Latasha Fields, lays out her life story, tells all these angry, bitter Democrats in the, in the U.S. House about how hard it was to discover, despite her having lived a life of personal responsibility, to have made a mistake and ended up pregnant, and how hard it was she had to decide whether to keep that child. It's a personal, emotional story that she opens up and shares with the people in Congress. To make her points, and to be clear, because we couldn't, I couldn't tell you in the whole clip what she was there to say, she was there to say, this Lati Pastor Fields was there to say, don't discount the idea of hard work. People need to be inspired to work. She's telling her own life story, how hard she worked. She worked since she was 15. She was working um, at Burger King or McDonald's or something at, at you know, 15 years of age. She talked about working to get herself ahead, working to find a way. Once she had a child, she had a delay going to college. She got good grades. She had a 4.0, I think. Good grades, but she couldn't go to college because she had to support her baby. She's talking about the virtues of a life lived with self-reliance. She did say in her testimony, yes, I, I, she had to accept welfare for a while. She had to accept food stamps because she couldn't get by. But she was driven as soon as she could to get off those programs. She was driven, as she said, to recognize you can't live your life in perpetuity in reliance on the government. She talked about her decision to, to have her child because she didn't want to, and she was ashamed of becoming part of what she saw as a statistic about the large percentage of, of African-American women in this country who have babies out of wedlock. She didn't want to do that. She's telling a story of her, per she's pouring her heart out, telling her story of her personal decision to keep her child, her success in life by hard work, diligence, and persistence. She wasn't urging the committee. In fact, she answered a question. I'm not saying cut all of this aid off. I'm saying we need ways to move forward. She said we can't have programs that exist in perpetuity. We have to have programs that help people get a skill, get them something they can use to then work themselves and become self-reliant. She's urging the American value of self-reliance. Now think back to what Ilhan Omar said. 
She's Ilhan Omar, mocking the idea of prayer, mocking Christianity, Christian values of actually valuing life, not wanting to have an abortion, even though she was tempted and, and informed about that option when she was 17 years old. She's mocking the Christian value of valuing life, mocking prayer, mocking love, mocking the idea of personal responsibility can actually get you ahead, mocking the idea of work, the idea that what you need to be inspiring people to recognize is instead of just turning to the government for another program, another handout, inspire work. She talked very openly about the need to have programs. This Letitia, Latasha Fields have programs that help people find skills and jobs. She wasn't mocking all welfare, but the hate and disdain spewing out of Ilhan Omar's mouth is despicable. Piled on top of that hate for the idea of Christianity is Ilhan Omar's socialist mindset, this godless mindset that says prayer doesn't matter, love doesn't matter. She, Ilhan Omar had a long spiel, you can't pray your way out of anything. You, she, Ilhan Omar, you can't pray your way out of poverty, you can't pray your way out of this, you can't pray your way out of that. Mocking the idea of people in this country who actually hold on to a Christian faith and believe that prayer actually brings results. And she was actually, Ilhan Omar it was tipping her hand as the socialist that she is because the entire answer to every issue is more government programs, more government handouts. She actually said things like, you know, essentially the only answer is for the government to spend money to give every American everything they need, health care, whatever else they need, whatever Americans need, the answer is government is the source of your needs. This is Socialism 101 spewing out of the Hanamara's mouth. This is what Star Parker wanted to talk about today, but we, as I told you, she's not available. She, and I got to tell you folks, even if you're on the American left and you think that the only answer for in low income communities is to just increase welfare programs. If you think that's the only answer, just buy, spend more money, raise taxes or borrow more money from the American government, spend more money, create programs, add new programs, add more people to welfare, add more people to food stamps. You could think all those things and not speak with such hate as Ilhan Omar did. You can say, you can be in the socialist, godless socialist mindset of Ilhan Omar and instead say, you know, I thank you for your testimony. I'm grateful, Ms., you know, Pastor Fields. I'm grateful that your life worked out so well. I'm grateful that you chose to have a child and you feel good about that and, and not go through with abortion. I'm grateful that you found success in life. However, I think many people don't have your spirit, don't have your hard, your, your work ethic, don't have your skills or capacity. I think we need to have more programs and spend more money because people can't otherwise make it. You could disagree with the message Fields had and still speak in a way that respects the unbelievably open of opening of her heart and her mind that this pastor Fields gave the U.S. Congress, gave America, but instead, remind yourself again, the Ilhan Omar's answer was disdainful of prayer, faith, Christianity, hard work, and life. All of that, very pretty much a nutshell of the American left.
on another topic too, I want to be sure we hit. And you know, there was, um, you may have heard that there was a um, a little back and forth between uh, the presidential candidate Kirsten Gillibrand. Gillibrand, uh, she's the senator, U.S. senator from the state of New York. She's running for president. Um, she distinguished herself on the stage uh, of the Democrat debate last week by essentially every pretty much every question she got, the answer was she wants government-funded elections. She wants no more private money in elections. We'll have to go off on that on another day. That is a flat-out violation of the First Amendment that you, I have to pay my taxes to go to the government to give her, someone I disagree pretty much everything she thinks, I have to pay for her speech? No, this is this is a non-starter. And, and honestly, she was she might have been the weakest person on the stage, but there was a fair amount of competition for that. Anyway, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand made a statement. There's a very short segment here, but she made a statement saying she compared pro-lifers, people who stand up for life, with racists. Her statement was, she's talking about the. Um, some moral clarity is needed as a society and we're allowed to say that the moral clarity exists and therefore the other side's view is simply not acceptable and this is again the intolerance of the american left especially because when they say things like that they're going to characterize what the two sides are whatever their side is is the only right answer and of course the way they characterize the other side whatever the conservative view may be is characterized in a way that you're just being that is made to sound absurd however here's what she had to say there is no moral equivalency when you come to racism okay that's a true story you know there's there's no more not two sides of whether racism is a good thing it's an evil flat out evil period you know full stop so she says there's no moral equivalency when you come to racism, and I do not believe there is a moral equivalency when it comes to changing laws that deny women reproductive freedom. So she's saying, she's equating racism, there's no moral opposite that it would be ever correct to say to stand up for racism. She's saying the same thing is true on the pro-choice view. Once we have laws in place that say pro-choice, you know, pro-abortion all the way up to birth, and as a matter of fact, even after birth, if you feel like it, which is her party's position, and she's saying she's equating that, she's equating that idea of racism has no two sides to it, that there are no two reasonable sides to the question of life, of pro-lifer. She's equating pro-lifers with racists. And so she got clobbered, as you might imagine. Star Parker weighed in, many people weighed in. I didn't want to read the answers, but that obviously, you know, she got clobbered by the, the pro-life advocates, Alveda King, who is the niece of Martin Luther King, uh, as well as Star Parker, both weighed in to say this is completely absurd, not a moral equivalent. Okay, so another story I wanted to hit today, and this, you know, I gotta tell you folks, every morning I sit down to decide what to do on the show, and I try to hone down of the, you know, so many important stories, you know, what is the top of, and really I kind of pick the stories that I feel passionate about, that I feel shape America's future, that are gonna have some impact on America, if we, especially if we can decide them the right way and then have a terrible impact if we decide them the wrong way. Well, there was actually just a short little story and very entertaining story uh, involving Nike. Now I have to tell you that Nike, um, 
has a uh, a contract with Colin Kaepernick. You know, he was the former, I think, San Francisco Giants. He was a quarterback. I'm not sure which team. I think San Francisco uh, quarterback. Um, and he was the one who began kneeling during the national anthem and le- led to all the, the battle in America about whether the NFL should honor the national anthem or not. And so, you know, he had other people kneeling and all that. Anyway, Kaepernick has a deal with Nike. And so Nike... The shoe company had a deal uh, and was ready to uh, begin. Uh, they were they were being invited to begin to manufacture in the state of Arizona, and they had gotten certain favorable uh, tax treatment, a regulatory treatment by the state of Arizona. Very very common things. Um, they actually has have um, they had given a. Um, I guess I don't know what the funds were that were at stake, but the state of Arizona had um, basically made a deal with Nike to let them come and start uh, manufacturing shoes there. And then the controversy arose over this pair of shoes. I'm going to ask my wonderful producer, Matt, Matt the Wonderful, to put a picture of these Nike shoes. Okay, uh, make it big if you could for just a second. Okay, how darn cute are those? Look at those shoes. I would have bought those shoes. Okay, what is on the back is the Betsy Ross flag. So it was to be a Nike kickoff thing. Isn't this cool? We're going to have sneakers with the Betsy Ross flag on it. Well, what happened was uh, Colin Kaepernick weighed in with Nike and said that he was offended by the Betsy Ross flag because, of course, the Betsy Ross flag, long before the Civil War, so slavery exists in America at this time that she did that flag. It's obviously hugely historically significant flag. And it was kind of a July 4th patriotic, you know, uh, symbol to put on sneakers. Kaepernick weighed in, told Nike that it was offensive to use a Betsy Ross flag on their sneakers. Nike saluted, or may I use the word, surrendered to the political correctness of Colin Kaepernick and said, never mind, we're not going to manufacture those shoes. And in a kind of, I'm going to guess it was a bit of a shock to Nike, uh, Arizona Governor Ducey pulled the Nike plant incentives, just said, you can't have incentives from our state if you're going to humor this, and honestly, it is ugly anti-Americanism out of the mouth of Colin Kaepernick. This, it is somehow noble in Kaepernick's mind to hate America, to to fight every symbol of America, to find a, a Betsy Ross flag as offensive. This is what Kaepernick was saying. And of all amazing things, Arizona Governor Ducey, not known as a strong conservative, he's Republican, but not known as a strong conservative, he came out and said, no, no, Nike, actually, you can't come here. We're pulling back our incentives if you're going to pull back these Betsy Ross shoes. Folks, this is the kind of activism we have to be engaged in on our side. We have to recognize the left, the radical left in this country pushes their issues relentlessly. They own the the country on the quality of relentlessness. The American left pushes their views in every single way possible, every place, all day long, all the time. It's not just academia, although academia is overwhelmingly radically leftist. It's not just Hollywood. It's not just the media. It is American corporations like Nike capitulating to Colin Kaepernick to start with, to do a deal with him, even though many Americans did not approve of Kaepernick's refusal to stand for the national anthem. 
but okay, you know, Nike wanted to do a deal with him anyway. But now Kaepernick is making calls and deciding whether or not Nike can put a particular pair of sneakers out with a Betsy Ross flag. This is a great thing because a great thing what Ducey did because Governor Ducey just said, you know what, actually, that's not very American. There are a series of tweets. Um, Ducey put out a bunch of tweets announcing his decision. It was really pretty. Uh, here's a couple of them. Nike is an iconic American brand and American country. This country, our system of government and free enterprise have allowed them to prosper and flourish. Instead of celebrating American history, the week of our nation's independence, Nike has apparently decided that Betsy Ross is unworthy and has bowed to the current onslaught of political correctness and historical revisionism. Amen to Governor Ducey. So we'll see how that plays out. You know, Nike, I guess they're so big they don't care. And that's what the same thing they said when it came to Colin Kaepernick. They're kind of so big they didn't care if Americans were mad about uh, Kaepernick, mad about the his refusal to stand for the national anthem. But there's really an argument here that this is a kind of thing people in authority need to do in consumers need to do. Stop humoring these companies. Make the companies feel the pain of the American people who don't want them to do this left leftist garbage thing like getting rid of the Betsy Ross Nike shoes. Nike, I hope, is going to feel some pain over this decision. Okay, we're on our last topic for today. You know, there's always more topics than time. But I'm going to turn this last, uh, just the last few minutes and talk about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And, you know, she's the, um, I I hate to say the word, she's a member of Congress uh, from the state of New York. Hopefully she's one-termer. But she uh, went and toured uh, a detention facility in America, detention facility. Um, She went down to the one in El Paso, Texas, which is um, obviously along the border. And um, she came back, she went with a a delegation of members of Congress and just so she what she put out afterwards was essentially a report that said there were people in this and again to be clear what this detention facility is these are on a, these are people who've entered America illegally have no legal right to be here are only in the detention facility because they came to America illegally they have no legal right to be here they are many of them are not yet minor yet yet adults they are they say children I wish the first thing I do is show you a picture they say children unaccompanied children and they're being held sometimes separated from parents trying to figure out who their parents are but i just want to show you this crowd of people at one of the detention facilities this actually is the one in florida i think okay if you think you're looking at the adults or the guards you're not you're looking at what they're calling children these young men fighting age men young men are not children in the way we normally conjure up the picture of children these are teenagers into late teen years men okay first thing the facilities are not just full of little babies they're full of young men who entered America illegally are seeking asylum we have a mess in our asylum laws largely caused by the effort of the Democrats to continue just essentially pushing to have asylum mean nothing at all so she goes Alexander Costa Cortez goes to the El Paso facility and she reported that children are people are being forced to drink out of toilets that they don't have water being forced to drink out of toilets that was one of her things you know pretty pretty majorly harsh grotesque allegation pretty gross I want next show you a picture of this bizarro but yet this is what this is the setup they have at these detention facilities okay there's obviously a water line coming in I mean this is weird you would never have this in in a normal situation but I think these facilities 
were built in a hurry. So here you have, you can see that the one on the right is more visible. You have a toilet, but behind it, in the back, that's a water fountain. Obviously gross, but the sign above it says potable, P-O-T-A-B-L-E, potable water. This means drinkable. This is water that meets potability standards. Many of you camp or are hiking. You see, you know, signs that say potable water or non-potable water if you can't drink it. So the water fountains attached to the toilet. Very gross, very weird, but it is not the case as or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tried to complain. I am going to guess it's not the case that people are actually having to drink water out of the toilet. There's a bizarre setup, but there's a water fountain behind the toilet. She also went on to talk about the um, just the poor behavior of the uh, the border patrol people, and they were laughing at her. They were rude. Uh, she made she just issued a series of tweets and accusations, uh, making just just really a harsh allegations about the conditions under which these people are being held. And again, people awaiting asylum rulings, people for whom we have to figure out. Do they have some place to go? These are minors, and so we just don't set them free, although they would probably like that. Uh, we don't just set them free. We figure out where they, where they can possibly go. I read that the average number of days a person stays in one of these detention facilities is around 41 days. It, so that's average, some more, some less. But, you know, the, this isn't like a life imprisonment. This is you're hanging 30 days after you entered a country illegally and want to get to stay here, and they're trying to figure out what standard, what, whether you meet any standard, whether you really have family here, what your basis is for seeking asylum. But it's really important to understand that the number of misrepresentations uh, that, that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez made, um, because number one, uh, she is trying to portray the picture that this is a an, a, an entire scheme created by the Trump administration. She's obviously going, as are all the presidential Democrat candidates, going to one of these facilities to just bemoan the conditions as terrible. We have these people and they've got bars, you know, they've got cages. I mean, they're not in cages, but they, you know, there's a fence around. They can't get away. That's why it's a detention facility. She's trying to make it sound like somehow President Trump rounded up a bunch of people who had, you know, otherwise were wandering around, you know, eating lollipops and, you know, drinking their Diet Coke and, and stuck him in, uh, in a facility. These are people who entered America illegally, number one. Number two, it didn't start with President Trump. In fact, there was a great speech at the Aspen Institute featuring Jay spelled J-E-H, Jay Johnson, Obama's former DHS secretary, who said... These words, chain link barriers, partitions, fences, cages, whatever you want to call them, were not invented on January 20th, 2017. Okay? Jay Johnson is, is explaining that we had detention facilities under President Obama when Jay Johnson was the DHS secretary that we did, that Trump didn't create these. We've had these all along. The only difference between what happened under Obama, what's happening under Trump. The only differences are President Trump is not going to allow this, this program of unaccompanied children to continue without actually being sure that we know who is here, do they have the right to be here? We're, we're going to be more firm and clear with our asylum policy. We're going to stop letting people get granted asylum on obviously cooked up, allegations about why they had to come here. We're going to be firmer in insisting that they actually don't have the right to stay forever just because they want to. Uh, number two, 
our southern border has been overrun with unaccompanied children and others seeking asylum because of policies put in place by the Democrat president preceding President Trump. We have our borders are overrun. Number three, the Democrats didn't care at all about these facilities under Obama because the long-term mission of the radical left is not to secure the borders. It's just the opposite. They were fine with us having to process people, fine with insecure borders, bring them over here. There was no attention to it. But I think the single reason, the most important reason that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, other Democrat members of Congress, and the Democrat presidential candidates are paying so much attention to these detention facilities is that they're trying to distract your attention from the reality that by any measure you can come up with, the Democrat Party does not want secure borders. They oppose borders. They oppose national security. They oppose borders. They want to have an open flood, which they will turn into somehow legal status, somehow eventually made into voting citizens whom they believe will all vote for them. So the left didn't care when these same things happened under Obama, but somehow under Trump is the worst thing ever. A lot more about that, but I got to wrap it up here. So I'm going to turn, my friends, to what we love to close the show with every week, and that is I'm going to tell you why the stories I talked about today matter to you. Unmasking Antifa. SCOTUS long ago agreed. In fact, you know, I wrote this. I think it might have actually been a circuit court. But anyway, long ago agreed. The First Amendment does not give blanket protection to masking your face. Antifa masks are like anonymous Twitter trolls provoking anger, hatred and violence while evading responsibility. Demand a culture of unmasked civil open debate. It'd be awesome if we could do that. Representative Ilhan Omar and Kirsten Gillibrand, two of them mocking Christianity, has become a Democrat calling card. Omar mocks the regenerative, reformative value of Christian faith in a budget hearing, and Gillibrand equates pro-lifers with racism. Planned Parenthood's Margaret Sanger was an admitted eugenist, racist, whom both Gillibrand and Ilhan Omar admire. The left's godlessness is completely out of touch with America. Nike's unpatriotic surrender, leftist bully businesses into pushing the leftist agenda. Some big businesses have joined forces with Hollywood, academia, and left-wing media. Nike chose to appease the hate America pop culture PC attitude when it surrendered to Kaepernick and dropped the Betsy Ross flag shoe design. Arizona Governor Ducey is doing what more Americans must do. Make businesses that capitulate to the left feel the heat. Let them lose money, sales, and the goodwill. Maybe it's time to cancel our Nike purchases. And AOC's dangerous border fantasy. Folks, I didn't get begin to have enough time to tell you all the garbage she and my view made up about this border facility. The border patrol people, by the way, said she walked in screaming at them, yelling at them, wouldn't do the tour, pushed her way into a cell, spoke to the people. She did not do the tour, she said she did. She stayed in one cell and came out and just had a meltdown, greeted the border patrol with accusations and a screaming voice. That's how she behaved as a member of Congress. Now back to her dangerous fantasies. We do have to try 
to meet basic safety and health needs of our detainees. And there was a decision uh, by a federal district judge to let doctors and other healthcare people into the, into the facilities. Obviously, we have to do that. But the mission that Alexandria has, we have to recognize the radical leftist agenda, eliminate borders, elevate non-citizens over citizens, eradicate all meaning to the word citizenship, and eventually eliminate the idea of U.S. national sovereignty. Leftists see things at the border that fit their agenda. They want America to not see and not focus on their agenda. No immigration detention center is really a concentration camp, Alexandria, because you can avoid it by walking the other way. And that, my friends, is America Can We Talk for today. Tomorrow, we'll have with joining with us someone who's going to run through the Supreme Court decisions about religious freedom, a little bit of progress in the session, but not enough. And I hope you can join me every day, Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time, for America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America. I urge you to do it too, because America matters. Talk to you tomorrow. Can we talk truth about America? Can you hear-